Bringing a novel therapeutic to market is an art. Hear Veristat thought leaders as they draw on their specialized expertise to offer insight on timely, relevant topics that impact clinical development, the regulatory landscape, and patient access to these novel therapies. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Art Podcasts, Advancing Revolutionary Therapies, a podcast series presented by the Centers of Excellence at Veristat. My name is Mara Hollinger, Senior Vice President of Regulatory Affairs at Veristat, and I'm delighted to continue Season 3, a dedicated series of regulatory podcasts on topics that cover everything from smart regulatory strategies to maintaining continued regulatory compliance to the influence of health authorities on clinical trials and more. Today, I am joined by Robin Bliss, Vice President of Strategic Consulting, and John Kirk, Principal Regulatory Strategist, both also with Veristat, to discuss today's topic on considerations for developing rare disease treatments. In Season 3, Episode 1 of the ART podcast series, we briefly discussed some of the challenges for developing products to treat rare diseases and orphan drug designations. Today, we will dive a little deeper into those challenges, particularly for diseases that might be considered ultra-rare. So welcome, Robin and John. Thank you for joining me today. I'm excited to discuss these topics with you. Thank you, Mara. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, thank you, Mara. Glad to be here. Thank you both. I'd like to have you start by telling us a little about what qualifies as a rare disease and perhaps a bit about some experiences you have working on programs where the disease might be considered ultra-rare. Robin, let's start with you. Thanks, Mara. The FDA defines a rare disease as any condition affecting less than 200,000 people in the U.S., and the EMA defines it as less than five cases in 10,000 people. However, neither agency specifically defines an ultra-rare disease. I have worked on programs where the case count was far lower than 200,000. Sometimes the actual case count is unknown. One that comes to mind had an estimated prevalence of somewhere between 1 in 1 million to 1 in 200,000, which translates to between 7,000 and 40,000 cases. I'd like to add to what Robin has said. 1 in 10 Americans are affected by a rare disease. Overall, approximately 7,000 distinct rare diseases have been identified. 50% of rare diseases affect children, and most rare diseases affect fewer than 1 in 100,000 people. I'm currently working on a program where the population is very small, that is 2 to 250 known cases worldwide. In other programs, in the lysosomal storage space in particular, the prevalence I've seen is approximately two to 3,000 known cases. In March of 2019, FDA issued a guidance on slowly progressive diseases, which says that lysosomal storage diseases are known to have a prevalence rate of approximately a few thousand or fewer cases in the U.S. Using this as a benchmark, an ultra-rare disease may be defined as one with a prevalence under about 5,000 cases in the U.S. It's clear there's a massive unmet need, though it's a challenging process to develop a new product to treat any one particular rare disease. Those are great points, John. While a single disease may be rare, there are many people that are affected by rare disease, either as a patient or as a friend or family member of a patient. Thinking of 1 in 10 Americans having a rare disease really emphasizes the importance of developing new therapies and taking a thoughtful, strategic approach early in the development process to ensure that not only are you, the researcher, on the right track scientifically, but that the preclinical and clinical studies are well-designed, that you have agreement to your approach from regulatory authorities, and that there is an opportunity to positively impact patients by improving their quality of life, reducing the impact of disease on their everyday life, or even extending their life. 
Thank you both. That's some really insightful background. Can you speak to some of the challenges that you've seen associated with developing products intended to treat rare diseases? Yes. As we just noted, there are thousands of unique rare diseases. Within a single disease, there are uh, individual patient experience can vary greatly from one person to another. Even if you know what the underlying genetic abnormality is, the expressed phenotype can be quite diverse. So it's very important to engage with patients early on in development to gain an understanding of what symptoms are most troubling to patients. That's true, John. And I can add that from a study planning perspective, understanding the phenotypes of disease can be really informative to identify subpopulations that might be more likely to respond to a new therapy. For phenotypes of disease, we need to determine how do they differ? Can those differences impact possible treatment or the reflection of the treatment effect? Once these are established as being different from one another, can the phenotypes be identified early before disease progression? Is there a genotype or a set of genetic markers that might indicate one phenotype versus another? Okay, thanks for that. So let's say you're able to identify different subtypes of disease and are planning your early phase study. How will you know whether your new product is working and how do you decide what to measure? Great question. So first, I will say that it may be that a single endpoint may not reflect the same type of meaningful impact across all phenotypes of the rare disease. And this really goes back to understanding the phenotypes and their similarities or differences. When defining endpoints, we have to remember that our goal is to treat the disease, not the symptoms. And we need to be able to define what are the characteristics of disease that we can modify. We can then consider what elements of disease in terms of patient function can be measured consistently and reliably. Finally, we consider which of these factors can be impacted or influenced by the novel therapy. When these overlap, we have a potential endpoint. I want to add that the progression or the speed of disease progression might not be known. It might be quite variable or it might take a really long time for the disease to progress. This needs to be considered when defining endpoints, along with how and how often we can measure them. To emphasize, endpoints need to be measurable, quantifiable, and timely. Yeah, so adding to what Robin just said, uh, when considering that a particular rare disease progresses slowly from a clinical perspective, there may be biomarkers of disease can be highly valuable for characterizing baseline severity, target engagement, and confirmation of the mechanism of action. An ideal biomarker will respond to treatment in a shorter time interval compared to changes in a symptomatic clinical outcome. For regulatory utility as an approvable endpoint, biomarkers or surrogate markers must be shown as predictive of clinical benefit. A good understanding of the underlying pathophysiology of the disease, the relevant clinical symptoms of the disease, and the rate of progression are key to the development of new treatment. Thank you both for all of that information. I think based on the conversation so far, there's a lot we could say about rare diseases during this podcast. But if you're willing, let's focus on some of the expectations from the health authorities regarding programs that are developing therapies for the treatment of rare diseases. An important aspect to keep in mind is that the regulatory agencies will generally take a flexible position when it comes to which non-clinical safety studies are required to assess the safety of a particular new product. Each rare disease has to be supported by relevant studies, not simply all of the studies included in the guidelines. Most notable, it's impossible to develop a safety database that meets the requirements in ICHE1. That is, uh, three to 600 patients treated for six months and a minimum of 100 patients treated for one year. The non-clinical safety program should be a point of agreement with FDA as early as possible in development. 
It's worth noting that FDA is typically not as flexible on GMP requirements. Also, recent experience in talking to FDA about development programs for rare diseases, the agency generally expresses a strong preference for placebo-controlled studies. However, for certain rare diseases, it might be impossible or unethical to use a placebo-controlled design, and substantial data may already exist from a registry or natural history source. Agreement on the study design should be a point of early discussion with FDA. That's a great point, John. And of note, I would actually like to take a step back and raise the concept of real-world evidence, which can be defined as evidence regarding disease progression and the potential benefits or risks of a therapy that is actually derived or supported by real-world data. Natural history studies are one version of real-world evidence, and we do have a few episodes in Season 2 of the ART podcast series that discuss some concepts surrounding natural history studies. And while these were developed in the discussion and context of cell and gene therapies, much of the information can actually be directly translated to other rare disease research areas. Okay, thank you. I appreciate your focus on health authority discussions. Much of what we've said so far has to do with things that you would approach the FDA on. Could you speak a little bit about approaching other health authorities and developing your program for the rest of the world? It's important to keep in mind that the agencies in the U.S. and across the world take a serious public health attitude toward developing treatments for rare diseases. Given that it's a small population, you plan for the development program to extend not only within the U.S., but also across Europe, Asia, and the rest of the world, according to where the patients reside. You'll probably need a global footprint to execute clinical trials that are powered based on the agreed endpoints. While you can start within the U.S. based on conversations with FDA, you should also plan for similar conversations with the regulatory authorities in the global areas where you will be executing the studies and eventually applying for marketing approval. The importance of this is to find as much convergence as you can on a single global development plan. While not all aspects may be viewed the same or of a similar importance within the different regions and authorities, gaining their respective experience and opinions will help you develop a robust development plan. Okay, thank you for that. John and Robin, thank you so much for joining me today. I think this has been a very interesting discussion and I really appreciate your input. Thank you, Mara. No problem. Thank you very much. Baristat has a wealth of experience in all facets of clinical regulations and can help you develop a detailed strategic plan tailored to your product that will reduce your regulatory risk. I encourage you to listen to future episodes of our regulatory podcast series and to reach out through the links available on the Veristat website. You can also subscribe to Art Podcasts on your favorite podcast player. Thank you for listening. Until next time. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe to Art Podcasts on your favorite podcast player today.